Good to see you guys. Welcome to part three of our series, Who Needs God? If uh, this is your first time to Eastlake, uh, thanks for checking us out. We're so glad you're here. My name is Brandon, the teaching pastor. Uh, I mentioned that this is part three, which means that you uh, <clears throat> are coming into the middle of a movie if you're a first-time guest with us. So what we've done, instead of spending a bunch of time trying to recap and catch you all up, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. You can listen to part one and part two, or listen to, re-listen to this one, because I'm going to move fast through a bunch of stuff today. And if it goes too fast, you can catch up uh, in that way. But it's been a series that's been targeted toward a group of people that we have a, a, a special affinity towards as a church. It's really the reason that we started a church. Um, I came back in July of 2010 and did a wedding for a friend of mine named Andrew. And at the wedding, I saw about 150 of our, our old kind of friends from high school and realized just through conversations with many of them, not going to church, not interested, not affiliated, not against it. They were like, thought it was really cool that I was a pastor and doing all that kind of stuff and heard that the church that I was going to sounded pretty great and uh, wish they could check it out, all that kind of stuff. And we realized, gosh, there's just, there's a growing number of people in America and the Tri-Cities who find themselves in a category of people who identify what we, what we said in week one as nuns, non-affiliated and, and uh, non-religious, um, and they have a kind of a motto, really. That, and they're not anti-religion. They're just not pro-religion either. Their motto is unofficial. There's no like letterhead or you, know, you don't get a jacket or anything like that, but it's don't know, doesn't matter. All people are connected, be ethical, but go light on God. 35% of Americans, and sorry, 35% of millennials in today's uh, America, and 25% of America as in general population identify themselves in this category when it comes to describe yourself as whether you're religious or not. They don't really want to check the atheist box because atheism kind of, as we talked about in week one, kind of leads down to this, if there's no creator and we're all just you know, biological, and it's all just kind of natural response, and it's all just kind of, it feels a little bit disparaged for some people, not everybody, but for some people, it feels kind of purposeless. And so I don't know if I want to go there. I want to hope for some sort of a divine being, and yet I don't want to mark the box as religious, because there's far too many things that come up when it comes to Bible and scripture and, and God and church that feels unreliable, and so there's some doubt. So I'm caught in the middle between doubt and despair, doubt and despair, and I, and I don't know what to do, so I'm just kind of, I'm a nun. And then I hear, and we hear, and you hear deconversion stories, stories from people who at one time were religious, one time did the whole church thing, grew up and going to church, and mom made them go, and they stopped going, and mom stopped making them go. And their stories typically feature one of two things that show up, and we said we're going to address these two things in the series. Last week, we addressed a somebody told me so, God, the reason that you may have walked away or you may have lost the faith, faith or are losing faith is because there is a version of a somebody told me so God. Somebody told me that God always acts like this. Somebody told me that God was, and we said last week, was a bodyguard type God where he doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people or a boyfriend God whose presence is always felt and if I can't feel him, then he doesn't exist. Uh, we said there are versions of God's, a, a version of God out there that are somebody told me so God and maybe you walked away from that version of God and that's probably a good thing because that type of a God doesn't actually exist. And just because you walked away from a God that doesn't exist doesn't mean that there isn't a God who actually does exist. And we said, hopefully our goal is to move you from kind of like this, I'm a nun, into more of a, I'm going to lean forward and approach this a little bit more and look at maybe the version that I walked away from wasn't really God at all or, or that God didn't exist. And so I, I rightfully walked away from him and I have a better way to invest my time. Today, this week, I want to talk about what's called a Bible tells me so Jesus. A Bible tells me so 
Jesus. And uh, I just just a warning for you, buckle up. It's going to be a little bit of a bumpy ride. I'm, I'm excited. One, because my voice is a little bit out today. <clears throat> but then two, there's just a lot of numbers, a lot of history. It's going to be a big kind of history lesson. And hopefully I get to the spot where we can talk about what the role of Scripture looks like. Because there, are, I think there are some people who have walked away and are losing a faith in uh, God and losing, losing their faith or walking away from faith because they found something in Scripture that doesn't match up with reality. There was something in the Bible that well, the Bible says this. Well, the Bible says this. And that just never matched up with reality for you. That just didn't match up with how you see the world and, and how it makes sense for you. And you go, man, if I, if I have to choose between like inaccuracies in the Bible or, or just, just odd things that I can't reconcile with, with how I want to live my life, then I just I want to walk away from it completely. Then that's, if that's you, if you walked away because of something in the Bible, my one request for you today is this, pay attention, pay attention, all right? All right, there are two songs that my kids have us sing, my wife and I sing, uh, before going to bed, I think almost every night, right? Unless they're completely wiped out and they fall asleep in the car on the drive home. But on normal nights when we are putting them down, we get them in their PJs, here's how the process works, get them in their PJs, brush their teeth, send them to their beds, and before we can walk out of the room, they say, uh, 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 daddy, prayer, right? And it's not because they're spiritual, it's because they're trying to delay bedtime, just so you know, right? That's the only reason. So we do a little prayer with them, and then after the prayer, I shut the lights off, and I try and walk out, and they go, uh, 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 song, daddy. And they always want to sing a song. Again, not because they're super musical, but because they are trying to delay bedtime a little bit more, and we have caved for so long in telling them songs and and singing them songs. So one of two songs. One is Amazing Grace, which is a a great song, and the best part about that song is it's short, which is why we brought it, or taught them that one. Uh, and then also uh, a song called Jesus Loves Me. You ever sing that with your kids? Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, how does that fit? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me so. And that, in other words, the reason that I know that Jesus loves me is because the Bible tells me that it does. The implication is that I can be sure of the love of Jesus for me because of what the Bible says about it. I also sing Gangster's Paradise with them, but that's just because they're big Coolio fans, and uh, I can walk through them. So that one's, those are like the long nights, but it works too. The Bible tells me so. That's where it all goes wrong for us. You see, you learn, we're setting them off on a bad foot. You ever, and I realized that as I was singing the song with them recently, like I'm setting them up for failure. Like, have you ever sang a song in the presence of your kids that you never really thought about the lyrics, but you're like, wow, Rihanna's really dirty. I should not sing that song in front of my kids, right? This song isn't dirty, but it does mislead in a sense. The implication is that the Bible is the reason that we believe, that it's convincing enough, that it's true, etc. And it teaches a, <clears throat> a methodology that I don't necessarily agree with theologically. Let me explain myself. Maybe you grew up in a super religious home where unquestioned authority of the Bible was the operating value of the day, Right? It was, well, the Bible says this. So that's when they had a Bible. There's like pictures in your home with Bible verses on them. And uh, there was one with like some footprints in the sand. Uh, and that, you thought that was a Bible verse, but it's not. It's just a poem. But you're like, see, that's the kind of stuff that is in my home. Uh, all kinds of Proverbs and Psalms and yada, 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 yada. Even, this is what's so funny too. Uh, Kylie has some family members who are not religious in terms of... Um, in, in terms of church attendance, I, I can't remember, recall the last time they've, they've come here, but only because of me, right? Uh, but, and they don't live here, so they don't come here often. But they, they, they're not church people, 
And yet, when it comes to some of the beliefs that they hold, especially in the arena of social welfare and everything like that, they would say things like this. They're very conservative. They're they're ironically conservative in some areas, and they, that conservatism is justified by, well, the Bible says. And, and when they've pulled that out, well, you know how the Bible says, I realize I don't think they're saying it because they know that I'm a pastor. I think that they would say that no matter who is in the room with them. I think that they have beliefs because of the Bible. And it, it, it's hilarious to me to be like, yeah, but you don't believe 90% of the rest of the Bible, so you just pull and take out which pieces that you like. Okay, whatever. However you want to do it. We're just glad you're reading the Bible. That's great. <clears throat> but what happens is the Bible becomes an authority that is almost unchallengeable. As, as soon as somebody says, well, the Bible says, then that should be enough for us. In fact, the going phrase, uh, growing up in a more conservative church that, that we had, that my, past, my dad was a pastor, of it, you'd get a board member every once in a while would stand up in front of the congregation and say, well, the Bible says it, and that settles it, right? And maybe you had a grandpa or a dad that did those types of things. <clears throat> and we did a series a few years ago uh, called The Bible Tells Me So um, that kind of addressed this issue because what I said in there is a lot of times we treat biblical authority um, like a house of cards or like a Jenga tower. Everything relies on this one thing. And the danger that we have is that we're so afraid of if we challenge and if we begin to question, I wonder if the Bible is kind of maybe wrong in this area. We feel like what we're doing is removing one of the lower Jenga blocks and the whole thing's going to come crashing down. Or in a house of cards, like if you remove one card, the whole thing collapses. And so we're so afraid of the whole thing collapsing. We dare not challenge anything that comes from the Bible. The problem is then we attend Bible's literature class at CBC because we're looking for an easy grade, right? Or uh, we, we read some book somewhere about from Bart Ehrman or Marcus Borg that challenges some, well, the, here's, the Bible is written mostly in the post-exilic period. We're just like, I, uh, <clears throat> we're, ta- <clears throat> we're told in science class or historic, uh, historic class or uh, ancient civilizations for me. I remember that with Robert Chisholm uh, at CBC. I don't know if you know Robert Chisholm. He's got, he had, it's a little grayer now, but fiery red hair, flannel shirt, red tuft of hair, and he'd come into class every morning, and he would open a book, and he would just set it there, and you just, just all you could stare at was the chest hair, and, and he'd talk about ancient civilizations class, and talk about how there's no archaeological evidence for a mass exodus of any people group from Egypt into Israel, right? That's like this made-up story, and then they talk about how there's no archaeological evidence for the walls of Jericho falling down, like we've excavated Jericho, there's nothing there. Um, there's no archaeological evidence for a worldwide flood. There has been flooding in big areas, but perhaps nothing worldwide. But the Bible says it's worldwide. Yes, I understand that. <clears throat> perhaps it was a people group who, for them, it felt worldwide in the same way that the other night, what, Thursday or Friday night when the storm happened, I thought that the world was caving into my house. And people in Connell are like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, it was 100 miles an hour here. And... Uh, Hail the size of tennis balls, uh, you know, not really, but whatever. You know what I mean. And, I, and then I also remember taking an environmental science class at CBC. And uh, I don't know if you know this, and this might pull you away from ever attending this church again, but I was homeschooled up until freshman year. <clears throat> and, uh, and my mom, uh, and, and then freshman year, she decided 
I was too advanced in math and science that I couldn't, she just stopped, she, it was beyond her knowledge anymore, you have to go somewhere else, I don't want to answer your questions, you know, all that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> I started going to Pasco High uh, freshman year and taking science classes, and then CBC, I took environmental science, and I remember getting uh, quizzes about certain eras, like paleothic eras and all this, well, the soil of this and the different levels of <clears throat> this and how many years old. And it was like a, it was like a, um, a multiple choice thing. I grew up on Christian science books. So the world was like 4,000 years old or 2,000 years old or something like that, right? <clears throat> Five. Anyways, it doesn't matter. And, uh, and I remember get this and the options were always like uh, 1.2 million, 1.4 million, 1.6 million or 7 billion years old. And you're like, E, 5,000 years old, you know what I mean? I just add one in there, wink at my mom. Just Actually, what I did, I, I would know what I'm supposed to say, but and I want the good grade, so I'm going to mark this, but mom, I got you. You and I both know it's a little bit older than the Beatles. You know, that's what I, so <clears throat> that's, the, uh, that's the kind of challenges that come, and we're like, oh, it stresses us out because we feel like if I, if I give in this one area, then I'm going to lose everything. If I give in this one area, if the Bible isn't true in everything, then it's true in nothing. And what unfortunately happens as a result of this is it puts the Bible at the center of the debate, and it makes it the most critical thing. And when there's issues with that, you may have walked away. And my comment to you is you may have walked away unnecessarily as a result. I think, and what I want to propose to you is the Christian faith is far more durable than any of that. If you deconverted because of something you read or were told in the Bible, pay attention. I want to give you my big idea up front. Here's my thesis. Here's the argument that I want to make, and then I'm going to kind of provide some reason to kind of back it up towards the middle of the message, and at the end, we'll do a conclusion. Here's the big idea, though. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. My guess is that you have a birth certificate at home. My guess is that it's in a drawer within a manila folder with a little title that says, don't lose this stuff right? Marriage license, birth certificate, passports. It's probably in something like that. You're like, he knows so much about us. It's how mine looks. That's, what, that's where it's at for me. If I lost my birth certificate, I do not then cease to exist, do I? I have never walked downstairs going, I am nothing anymore. <laughs> I cannot find it anywhere. Uh, my birth certificate documents something that happens. It's not the reason for my existence, okay? It still has value. I'm still glad that I have a birth certificate. It still says something about me. I still cannot get a driver's license without it or a passport without it. I've got to get some sort of certificate so that my age can be verified. It has to do with verification, but not the purpose of its existence. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible, it's the other way around. You see, our fear is if we discredit the Bible, we lose everything, then Christianity doesn't exist. But Christianity existed far before, far uh, much longer before the Bible ever did. The Bible exists because Christianity does. I want to show that to you through a history lesson, and we're going to throw out a few numbers here, so get your pens ready or whatever, <clears throat> or text that number into the, um, the thing on your note sheet. All right, Jesus born in not 0 BC. 0 BC does not exist. In the dating spectrum, it goes 1 BC and then 180. There is no zero. And because of a math addition in the fifth century that they got a date wrong, it actually 
probably exists that Jesus, or probably is true, that Jesus was born sometime between 2 and 4 BC. So what that means is Jesus Christ existed before Christ, if you're holding on firmly onto the calendar. Anyways, it doesn't matter. That's just weird knowledge that you can use in a trivia later on, or in case you ever get on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. All right, we know that at the age of 33, he was crucified. And that date is a little bit loose. What's a little bit more firm is the date that we think that Jesus Christ was crucified, which was 30 AD. 30 AD, Jesus is crucified on a cross. And we know that immediately after this happened, Peter and all of his friends see Jesus. They see him resurrected. And as a result, then he ascends and does the ascension in Acts chapter one. And then what we see is the explosive growth and the birth of the church. So the church begins in AD 30, okay? 30 AD, that's when the church starts. That's an important date. Now, another important date, and probably one that you've never heard of, is AD 70. In AD 70, August 6th, now we can get down to a specific date, 2 to 4 BC, that's a two-year range. We know in 30 AD, somewhere within that year, Jesus died, but then on a specific date, and I'll explain why it's a specific date in a moment, August 6th, 70 AD, something happens. Jerusalem is captured. Everything about the Jewish faith and everything about Israel is now in jeopardy because invaders of the Roman Empire... See, what happened is Israel was, uh, was associated in with the Roman Empire, but it was kind of a fringe. It was, it was kind of right on the, on the outer boundary of the Roman Empire. So at, they were kind of treated as an outpost. Listen, you're going to pay taxes, you're going to do all the things, but we're not going to have direct oversight. We are going to hire people to have oversight over you, hire some of your own people to have oversight over you. <clears throat> as a result because of, of a lack of accountability, then what Israel figures out is every once in a while they go through these rebellions where they don't want to be a part of the Roman Empire anymore. So they form these Jewish rebellions. Somebody rises up, is, claims to be a, a Messiah, uh, somebody who's going to save the people. They form this rebellion. It's squashed by the Roman Empire. A few years later, same thing happens, squashed again. Same thing happens again, squashed again. Eventually, Rome gets sick of it and they're like, fine. <clears throat> we're going to send somebody down there. His name is Vespasian in 69 AD. Vespasian, you're going to go through. You're going to obliterate everything. Don't take any surrenders. There's no more white flags. They had a chance to do it all. We want you to destroy everything, punish the people for what they should have done years ago. So he, becomes, he comes through in 69 AD, begins wiping out in the north, like Galilee, all the way down up to Jerusalem. Then what happens is Emperor Nero in October of 69 commits suicide and leaves the, the empire of Rome in kind of a jeopardous situation because there's no rightful heir. It was kind of a sudden thing, and so they didn't have this long transition of who's going to be next in power. So what they have is it, Rome gets thrown into a civil, civil war known as the Year of the Four Emperors. In other words, there's four people vying for the throne. Each one kind of claims it, and then he's killed. And then each one claims, another one claims it again, and then he's killed. And finally, <clears throat> the Roman legions uh, promote Vespasian, who was, a, who was a big leader, who was a big military guy, very popular, very well-known, as emperor. They declare him emperor. So he's got to walk away from his current job of destroying Israel and go be emperor of Rome. He leaves behind his son Titus and says, listen, I want you to besiege the city of Jerusalem. I don't want you to go in. in instead of wasting manpower like that, I want you to dig a trench around it. <clears throat> 
and I want you to siege it. In other words, don't let anybody in and don't let anybody out, and they will starve themselves to death. And that's exactly what happened. And for months and months and months, the city of Jerusalem is besieged. For a while, they're fine. They're just inside. But eventually, the food runs out. And eventually, it says that things got so bad, people begin to starve themselves to death. They begin to engage in cannibalism as a, way, as, as a means of survival. In an effort to not be cannibalized, many people would commit suicide. Many people would go outside of the gate and, and know that they're walking into their own death, but we're going to die anyways. Let's get it over with now. It became, it was one of the most dark, darkest periods of Israel's history, AD 70. And on August 6th of AD 70, the walls are breached. Many of them were crucified. Thousands of them are put into slavery. And the reason that we know this is because the price of slaves in the Roman empire dropped dramatically on that day because of such an influx of Jewish slaves that were introduced into the system. It was horrible something you would never forget about if you were, if you were of uh, Israel descent, if you were of Jewish descent. Now, it is interesting because none of that appears in any of the New Testament documents that we have. Why is that? Why is it that 40 years after the birth of the church, when they're writing about what happened in the life and the teachings of Jesus and all the different churches that get planted, not one mention, not one mention of something that's so significant in their history. One of the logical explanations is that perhaps these writings took place prior to this occurrence. Maybe it hadn't even happened yet. But a lot of scholars are hesitant to do that. Why? Because the further out they can put it from the date of it actually happening, the more they can justify some of the legends that had taken place or the legendary stories or all of these stories of miracles taking place or Jesus is dying and then raising from the dead and that never happens and, and, and yet these people are claiming it to be so. And yet, if we could push it out to like 100 AD, then that means it's 70 years after it happened. And if something takes place 70 years after it happened, then perhaps the details got a little bit jumbled. Then perhaps the stories, you know, took on kind of like your grandpa as he tells a story and over time, the story begins to get bigger, the fishes are bigger, everything happens, right? You know what I mean? This week, we, um, you probably saw on Facebook, we got robbed by a couple of teenagers who snuck in, right? I called the cops the next day. We had, we had video footage. I talked to them about the exact times. I sent them an email. It says, 1214, they walked in. At 146, they left. Here's their names. Here's what they wore. Here's what they took. This guy lives with his mom still. He's bad at cornhole, all this kind of stuff. We said all kinds of details about these kids. We knew everything. Now, here's the deal. It was perfect. It was great. They returned the stuff the next day. It's not a big deal. Had they had talked to me two years from now, and, and you, you go, tell me about that night that those kids came in and robbed stuff. I'd be like, yeah, we did get robbed, didn't we? I think they took some stuff. I think his name was, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. What time did you come in? Oh, I, I don't know. It was off hours. We weren't even in. It was, you know, middle of the night. They just snuck in one of the doors that we had accidentally left propped open. All of the details get foggy, and that's only two years later. Imagine 70 years later. I'd be like, I'm sorry, what? East Lake Trice, I don't even, I'm just kidding. I, I would totally know what that is. I'm just kidding. I, but the details would be lost. And so what scholars try to do to justify some of the miracles and some of the ridiculous notions of a guy raising from the dead is to put it so far into the future that of course those things develop. Of course those things develop. Of course those stories have time to take legendary status. But what's unique about New Testament scripture, what's unique about the New Testament documents is that I believe that most of them, if not all of them, were written prior to AD 70, which would justify why that stuff isn't included. 
And when you look at, on Easter, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's letter to a church in Corinth, and he writes to them about the resurrection of Christ. And remember what he says to them. He says, um, listen, if you don't believe me, buy yourself a bus ticket and go to Jerusalem and investigate it for yourself. There are eyewitnesses there. He didn't say bus ticket. I made that up, just so you know. I'm not being accurate, right? Um, he says, go and talk to them. There are eyewitnesses who are still alive today, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died, but there are still people who are alive today. It would have been far easier for Paul to say, oh man, you just missed it. The last eyewitness just died, but you can trust me. Trust me, it's true. Trust me, it's true. Listen to how Luke, remember Luke was a doctor, not one of Jesus' disciples. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, listen, I, I wanted to make sure that this kind of stuff didn't get lost in the history of time. And so I'm going to document what took place in the life and the teaching of Jesus. And, and he writes a letter to a guy named Theophilus, and he begins to describe all of these things. And in chapter three, right after he does the whole Christmas story, right, the uh, Annunciation and the birth of Jesus, <clears throat> In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, here's how Luke writes and starts his story about Jesus. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Could you be more specific, Luke? We're trying to figure out exactly when. He's like, listen, listen. I am painting myself into a corner. It would be far easier for me to be like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. How do you verify that? I have no idea. He's like, no, no, no. Fact check me. Let me I, I'm not even going to say in the reign of Tiberius because that's like 40 years. But then also Pontius Pilate's governor of Judea. Okay, so now we've narrowed it down a little bit. And then Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Okay, now we've really narrowed it down. He's getting down to where the thing is going. I dare you. I dare you to check my information. Why? Because I'm telling you what I wrote is what I saw. I'm not writing down what I believed. I'm writing down what I saw. The reason that New Testament documents have value to us is not because they're inspired as much as they're, they're people who wrote eyewitness accounts of what they experienced and what they saw. That is critical. That is a huge piece of this. In the first century, there's an explosion of documentation about the life and the person of Jesus and Paul's letters to the various churches. These letters would then go out, they would be copied and distributed to different churches and different people, but they would be individual. We've always said from the very beginning, if you've been around Eastlake for any length of time, listen, <clears throat> I try really hard not to say the Bible says this. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection. It's a library. It's a collection of various New Testament authors who wrote about their, their experiences and their history, and they're this. And what we have with the Bible is a collection of historical documents that is unrivaled in ancient literature, unrivaled. I wish I could go into massive detail on this. I can't. You can do research for yourself. I'm going to do one example, and then, like I said, Google. you have permission to Google check me on everything. I'm not smart enough to make any of this up, okay? So trust me, look at it for yourself. You've heard of Homer's Iliad, right? Homer's Iliad was the most popular book in the Roman Empire. It was the, he was the Taylor Swift of, of the Roman Empire, okay? Everybody knew it. Everybody read it. it was, that's how you did it, right? We have 
643 copies, ancient documents of Homer's Iliad. The earliest one is from about 400 BC. We have a, a document of Homer's Iliad from 400 BC, but that's still 500 years after we historians think that the Iliad was composed. 500 years after that is the earliest copy, but we have 643 copies. Of those 643 copies, they have about a 95% accuracy rate between versions. When you read them, they all look very similar. It's crazy. It's one of those well-documented ancient documents that we have, surpassed only by New Testament historical documents. 5,600 copies, not of the entire scripture, but of, of, of books within the New Testament canon. The earliest comes from about 130 AD, which is less than 100 years after it happened. 500 years in between the composition of the Iliad to its our first copy, so a lot of changes could have taken place. And yet, with the New Testament scriptures, what we have is we have a, a, a piece of a fragment of the book of John that is written less than 100 years from what was originally composed. And of those 5,600 copies, check this out, 99.5% accuracy amongst those copies. Are there variations? You've always heard, well, there's all these kinds of documents and they can't seem to agree with all of each other. Listen, if I put something, a big paragraph on the screen, and I said, everybody pull out your pen and your paper and write this paragraph down, most of you would get it word for word exactly right. A couple of you would cheat corners, right? You'd do a contraction. If I said are not, you'd put aren't. That'd be a little bit different. A couple of you might get a few pronouns wrong. There'd be, for the most part, a pretty good collection of this. Small variations. That's what we see in Scripture. 99.5% accuracy. And by the way, if you buy any English study Bible off Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble today, what you'll get is a book, and in, those, in that book will be a lot of footnotes, and those footnotes will document almost all of them. Christianity theologians, my, we don't hide. We don't, we don't like, well, trust me, it's pretty accurate. You know what I mean? We're like, here's the variations. Some early manuscripts say this, some, some go this route. There's some don't include this ending for the book of Mark, some of them do. But for the most part, oh, and not even for the most part, there are no major differences theologically between what we see in the New Testament documents. It's not like in some versions, Jesus is crucified on a cross, and in other versions, he fell off a ladder, okay? That's not... The, I, in the big issues, it gets it 100% right. <clears throat> the early church, and by the way, the, and this was before the printing press, they would have to take so much time and so much, so much effort, and it was so costly, and the materials to copy this stuff down, it's, it is insanely incredible that we have the type of literature and the accuracy and the, and the number and the quantity of New Testament scripture as we do. It's historically an anomaly. And what we know is that they did not make copies of the Gospels because they were inspired. Listen, when they wrote these things down, they didn't do it because they felt that the Scripture themselves were inspired. They made copies because they believed that they were true. And because they had historical evidence with them, they felt the detail to get it exactly right to the best of their abilities. Now, fast forward a few years. 312 AD, Constantine becomes <coughs> excuse me, the undisputed leader of the Roman Empire. We've all heard of Constantine. 
Up to that point, Christianity was illegal. He becomes a Christian. Actually, what happened is while it was still illegal, his mom becomes a Christian. This is true. His mom becomes a Christian while it's still illegal. The emperor, can you imagine being the president <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and your mom's doing something legal and you're like, well, let's just make it legal for everybody. How, how does that sound? <laughs> he declares Christianity no longer off limits. In fact, he embraced Christianity and became a and made a public announcement that he himself had become a Christian. Now, scholars and, and secular historians will say, yeah, but he didn't really do it because he became a Christian. He became a Christian because it helped him politically. It unified an empire. He did it because it benefited him socially, right, and politically. I totally get it. I understand. Can you imagine a nation or a state making something legal because it was already going on enough anyways? How can we then, can we figure out how to create tax revenue? That's what's happening here, okay? In order to do that, though, in order to engage in Christianity as a resource for unifying the empire, that would require Christianity to be so big that it was worthwhile and a worthwhile endeavor enough to be able to have the impact to unify an empire. Think of that. Think of that. I'm going to use the secular historian's model even against them. It was big enough to unify the empire. Therefore, it had to be enormous. In other words, the most explosive growth that Christianity probably ever had was in the years 30 to 312 A.D. D, the observation as a result of that, or my argument is that Christianity made its greatest strides during the 300 years before the Bible even existed. Why? Because in 325 AD, Constantine, in an effort to kind of help things out in terms of the church world, there's a lot of like varying beliefs on what took place, established or called for the Council of Nicaea. Hey, there's a lot of viewpoints on who Jesus was, whether he was God or not God, and Athanasius and all kinds of... So we're going to get together, have some conversations. There was a, a guy named Arian who, uh, who developed this theology of Arianism, that Jesus wasn't exactly God, he was just a good person. We're going to get it all on the table, and we're going to begin the conversation about what books are holy. What books... There's a lot of different versions. There's a lot of different documents out there. There was not a canonized version of what is scripture. There was no Bible yet. There were documents, but there was no official canon of Scripture. And they began the conversation in 325 A.D. Then the Codex Sinaiticus was developed. It's our earliest known copy, where what we have is a copy of the Old Testament paired with the New Testament. It wasn't even called the Bible yet. It was called Codex Sinaiticus, and it's dated between 330 and 360 A.D. And then in 388 A.D., we finally get a collected version, and it's called Ta Biblia, which in Latin means the Bible, which means that Christianity became big enough to topple an empire in the years where Christianity itself was legal, that most people didn't own the Bible. Most people have probably never even read a Bible. <coughs> yes, those New Testament documents existed, but, and yes, there was 5,600 copies at least that have made it through history but nobody individually probably owned them. This would be communities. This would be expensive. These would be hard to find. 
Before the Old Testament, New Testament combined and titled the Bible, Christianity had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian, and most Egyptian gods and was the state religion of the empire. That's insane, guys. For about 300 years, Christians believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They said, no, 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 we know Jesus loves We don't need a Bible to tell us that. For the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. Not a book. That's why at every Easter, um, I preach the same message every year. Everybody's like, oh, that was so good. I'm like, if you came last year, it was just a repeat. I should just play the video for you. That's what I should do. Save myself a lot of time that week. I always say, listen, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, not because the Bible tells us so, but because Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, took it upon himself to write an account of what he said he saw. We said it, we, we believe it because Mark got his information from, P, from Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, his closest disciples, and he interviewed Peter probably over several accounts and gave Peter's version of the story. We believe it because a guy named Luke was a doctor who took it upon himself because he was skilled in the era of writing and probably not, of the, not a lot of the disciples were smart enough or educated enough or literate enough to be able to write this down. So he's like, I'll do it. I'll step up. I've got some skills. Let me write about it. And John, one of Jesus said, we believe it because all of those people said, I can't shake what I saw and I have to write about it. And what did they write about? An event. We saw someone die. Peter would say this, I saw him die with my own eyes. Then a few days later, some women came to our house and said, the tomb is empty. I ran up to the tomb. And you know what I concluded? Somebody stole the body. I didn't jump to the conclusion that he rose from the dead. Somebody stole the body. Then a few days later, I was out fishing and I saw Jesus on a beach. The same guy I watched die. He was risen he invited me onto the beach. We had breakfast together. It was scones. I'm just kidding. That last part's a joke. I don't know what they ate. But he's like, I can't. I'm telling you, this is what happened. He would step in front of the people in Jerusalem, and when he would get up to teach, he would be like, God made himself known through the person of Jesus. I can't shake it. I can't deny it. You killed him. He rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Say you're sorry. That was his message, basically, to the people. You read the book of Acts. The success of the early church was not because their book made the bestsellers list. And if you grew up in an environment where you were not allowed to challenge a question or ask questions or be like, well, what about the authority of the Bible? I totally get that. I get it. But you have to remember that or you have to think about the fact that Christianity exploded onto the scene. 300 years, for 300 years, before ever a book was in place. So perhaps, perhaps there's more to the story than we give it credit for. Perhaps if we begin to challenge a little piece about this and go, well, yeah, but maybe, maybe the author of that was trying to communicate something else. Perhaps if we remove that Jenga piece, it all does not come toppling down. The primacy of a biblical foundation for faith is a relatively modern creation. 
there's some history, and I, I can't go into details, but the Reformation, 15th century. In fact, this is the 500-year anniversary this year, October 31st. But in 1517, Martin Luther, you know, posts his 95 Theses on the wall. He sees the church as a broken system. He's trying to draw people back. And one of the things he talks about is sola scriptura, by, you know, scripture alone. And he did it because of a brokenness in the church, because they would chain the Bible to a pulpit and be like, here's what it says. Trust us. We're reading it accurately. And it was more of an effort to get the Bible into the people's hands, saying, well, let us make some judgment calls for ourselves." There's all kinds of stuff in there. And at that point, moving forward, the Bible then kind of, or the, the percept, public perception or the Christian perception, church perception of scripture kind of swayed then in the opposite direction, probably too far to the other side of the fulcrum. And the Bible became the foundation for our faith. <coughs> but that, but that is only a few hundred years old. The original version of Christianity was defensible. It was persecutable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. It was compelling. And it was endurable because it centered on an event, not a book. Christianity doesn't, didn't disrupt an empire because of a true Bible. Christianity disrupted an empire because of a resurrected Savior. Because of a resurrected Savior. <clears throat> so, next week, what I want to talk about as we come back and continue this conversation. If Jesus is the guy, then, if Jesus, then, is the center, if the event speaks of the resurrection, then that speaks about who Jesus was, and he claimed to be um, God him, himself, he claimed to be able to tell us what God is like, what did he have to say about God. Perhaps it would be worth our time to look at what he has to say about who God is and who better to answer the question that, of what God is like and whether or not we actually need him. So my hope is that you'll come back as we continue the conversation about who needs God. Let's pray. Father, this can be so, so, so challenging. And I, 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 uh, this has been a struggle for me. This is not something that has come easily even for me and my, and my personal. I grew up in a very conservative home when it came to scripture and Bible and stuff. And I remember sitting in classes and reading books and being challenged, reading this, going like, I shouldn't even be reading this. I shouldn't even be thinking this way. And yet, um, I feel like your spirit then guides us into really taking an evaluation of what is most critical, what is most important, what is perhaps... There are angles of the scriptures and, and, and the reason why these things are recorded and the reason why they came together that we have not given enough credit to and explored enough. So I'm not proposing, I'm not <clears throat> proud enough to assume that we've got it all figured out. I, I, I approach this humbly as an, as an option and something that I, I, I know I've been struggling and working through. I pray that you would give each and every one of us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. Perhaps, perhaps this is a small window of an invitation back to a faith in you that isn't destroyed by a, I'm not sure what I believe about the Bible. Because when we've said it in the past, we've kind of been either disowned, perhaps, by religious institutions, or we've just done the work ourselves and disowned ourselves or distanced ourselves from religion based on our doubts. But perhaps that was unnecessary. Perhaps you can guide us back 
into a loving and trust relationship with you. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with all of this and the curse to act on it. In your name, amen.